Well, you know, every once in a while you come in here and if you realize that the president is on Twitter this morning, you never know how you're going to start the show. Uh, Well, we've just up into things. By the way, uh, next hour, Kellyanne Conway is going to join me. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, the president of the United States, I will read you, I will read you his four tweets in a row. Are there, are there more than four? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, oh man. He's, he's, he's been on a, a Twitter tirade, uh, this morning. Uh, let's see. It starts. Republicans feel that social media platforms totally silence conservative voices. We will strongly regulate or close them down before we can ever allow this to happen. We saw what they attempted to do and failed in 2016. We can't let a more sophisticated version of that happen again, just like we can't let large-scale mail-in ballots take root in our country. It would be a free-for-all on cheating, forgery, and theft of ballots. Whoever cheated the most would win. Likewise, social media, clean up your act now. We have been informed both India and China that the United States is ready, willing, and able to mediate or arbitrate their now-raging border dispute. New papers make clear that the Obama administration spied in an unprecedented manner on the Trump campaign and beyond, and even on the United States Senate. Nobody would ever have believed that this level of illegality and corruption would be taking place in our beautiful USA. Obamagate makes Watergate look like small potatoes. He put that one in all caps. We are acting as a police force, not the fighting force that we are in Afghanistan. After 19 years, it is time for them to police their own country, bring our soldiers back home, but closely watch what is going on and strike with a thunder like never before if necessary. We passed 15 million tests today, by far the most of the world, open safely. And then 25 minutes ago, he returns. Psycho Joe Scarborough is rattled. Not only by his bad ratings, but all the things and facts that are coming out on the internet about opening a cold case. He knows what is happening. Um, um, wow. I await Brian Steltner to do the narrative play-by-play of the president watching Fox and Friends and telling me what's happening. I mean, you know that's what's going to happen. Uh, this morning's tweet stream is the gift that keeps on giving to reliable sources at CNN. Uh, they will they will do the narrative of what the president's doing. I, I got to focus on the Joe Scarborough one, though, because he, even the Wall Street Journal, which is uh, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, has been uh, very pro-Trump. And yet even the, and I suspect that the president is is tweeting this in response to this editorial. This is from the editorial page editors of of the uh, Wall Street Journal. Donald Trump sometimes traffics in conspiracy theories. Recall his innuendo in 2016 about Ted Cruz's father and the JFK assassination. But his latest accusation against MSNBC host Joe Scarborough is ugly even for him. Mr. Trump has been tweeting the suggestion that Mr. Scarborough might have had something to do with the death in 2001 of a young woman who moved, who worked in his Florida office when Mr. Scarborough was a GOP congressman. A lot of interest in this story about psycho Joe Scarborough. So a young marathon runner just happened to faint in his office, hit her head on his desk and die. I would think there is a lot more to this story than that. An affair? What about the so-called investigator? Read story, Mr. Trump tweeted Saturday while retweeting a dubious account of the case. He kept it going Tuesday with new tweets. The opening of a cold case against psycho Joe Scarborough was not a Donald Trump original thought. 
This has been going on for years, long before I joined the chorus. So many unanswered and obvious questions, but I won't bring them up now. Law enforcement eventually will. Nasty stuff. And from the Oval Office to more than 80 million Twitter followers, there's no evidence of foul play or an affair with the woman. The local coroner ruled that the woman fainted from an undiagnosed heart condition and died of head trauma. Some of the web are positing a conspiracy because the coroner had left a previous job under a cloud, but the parents and husband of the young woman accepted the coroner's findings and want the case to stay closed. Mr. Trump always hits back at critics, and Mr. Scarborough has called the president mentally ill, among other things. But suggesting the talk show host is implicated in the woman's death isn't political hardball, it's a smear. Mr. Trump rightly denounces the lies spread about him and the Steele dossier, yet here he is trafficking in the same sort of trash. Representative Adam Kinzinger a Republican from Illinois had it right when he tweeted over the weekend, completely conspiracy, just stop, stop spreading it, stop creating paranoia. It will destroy us. Uh, now, I've got to put some context in this. In 2001, after the Bush versus Gore election, a very divisive country unfolded before our eyes with George W. Bush becoming the president and Democrats chanting selected, not elected. Republicans had managed to hold the House and were working very hard to keep the Senate. They lost the Senate when, uh, what's his name, uh, Jim Jeffords switched parties. They would win it back ultimately in the 2002 election. It was one of the very few times an incumbent Republican uh, party picked up seats in Congress. And into this came Chandra Levy. In May of 2001, before 9-11 started a re reunion of the country's political divisions, a, a, a temporary healing, Chandra Levy uh, disappeared. She was presumed murder. Her skeletal remains were found in 2002. The police in Washington screwed up the case. And they began to implicate Gary Condent, a Democratic congressman in his fifth term from California. He was married uh, and there were allegations that he had had an affair with Chandra Levy. Now, uh, Condit had an alibi. He was never named as a suspect by the police. He was eventually cleared, but he lost his reelection in 2002. Into the midst of that, uh, there's a congressman from Florida, a, a Republican congressman who is passionately hated by the left, believe it or not. Uh, Joe Scarborough was uh, the congressman for the Pensacola, Florida area, and he was passionately hated by the left. And around the time that this happened, uh, Joe Scarborough uh, lost the intern who worked in his office. And well, of course, uh, as a result of this, as the rumors were swirling about Gary Condit, Lori Clausitis, I believe her name is, Lori Clausitis, uh, she died in his office in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Uh, now, it, it is, it, what was so interesting of this is that uh, Marcos Melitzis from Daily Coast and Michael Moore are the people who really started this rumor. Um, 
da- Daily Coast circulated the rumor. Michael Moore registered a domain. Joe Scarborough killed his intern. Uh, and it is it was a pattern on the left of trying to find someone on the right that they could equally blame. So it was a left-wing conspiracy against Joe Scarborough, not a right-wing conspiracy against Joe Scarborough. It was a left-wing conspiracy uh, agitated by prominent voices on the left because they needed a whataboutism. That if Gary Condit was suspected of killing his intern, we need a Republican. Let's pick on the pro-life guy from Florida. Joe Scarborough came to fame uh, because he represented pro bono, a a pro-life activist who murdered an abortion clinic doctor. Scarborough uh, was a a huge, huge pro-life advocate and represented the guy pro bono and then ran in a race, ironically, where Newt Gingrich backed his opponent. Joe Scarborough ran for Congress against a woman who was a squishy, moderate Republican who had been a Democrat. The Republicans convinced her to run as a Republican in the Florida panhandle. Uh, Scarborough and outside Republican groups knew that they could get a stronger conservative. Ironically, now, when you see how Joe has evolved over time, but at the time, Joe Scarborough was one of the most militant members of Congress uh, as a conservative. He helped lead the revolt against Gingrich when he felt Gingrich was selling out to Bill Clinton. And it was a left-wing smear against him. And this is it's ridiculous for the president to dwell on this. It's unfortunate that the president would dwell on, uh, would pick up a left-wing conspiracy and start spreading it around. A Michael Moore-backed conspiracy against Joe Scarborough. That is deeply disturbing. And it's a distraction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a story out today, actually. The Politico has the story. I've got it up at the Resurgent. Uh, there's a story out today that outside groups are starting to be concerned that the president's campaign team is distracted. They're, they're throwing the kitchen sink at Joe Biden. They don't have a defining message against Joe Biden. And as the result, uh, they're seeing Joe Biden gain traction uh, in the polling and they're concerned. And, you know, the Republicans have been very braggadocious about the fact they were going to use the um, they, they were going to use the playbook of George W. Bush versus Al Gore. And in the playbook of George Bush versus Al Gore, I'm sorry, not, not George Bush versus Al Gore, uh, George Bush versus John Kerry. In 2004, John Kerry didn't officially become the Democratic nominee until the, uh, until the beginning of August. As a result, he couldn't get campaign matching funds from the federal government. And because he couldn't get campaign matching funds from the federal government, he had spent all of his money to become the Democratic nominee. And George Bush had this massive war chest. And Bush began pounding Kerry relentlessly. Remember the flip-flopper ads? There was John Kerry on the uh, on on the uh, what the, the the windsurfing board, going back and forth and back and forth. And they defined him as a flip-flopper. They used May and June to define Kerry so negatively that Kerry could not recover. He rebounded momentarily around the time of the convention. Every candidate gets a convention bounce. Kerry got one, went ahead of Bush in the polling, and then the Bush team re-upped all the flip-flopper attacks that you couldn't trust Kerry. You never knew what he was going to do. And Kerry Crater, George Bush, got 51% of the election. He was the first person in American history to have won election the first time by even though he lost the popular vote and then won the popular vote the second time. That had never happened in American history. And George W. Bush was able to do it. And a lot of people were thinking, you know, hey, this this is what uh, this this is exactly what 
the president needs to do. And there are a lot of outside teams who have thought that. And they've expressed their concerns to the president and the president's team summoned a bunch of uh, grassroots leaders from the swing states to assure the president's okay. Y'all, I just, can I tell you something? I have this suspicion and it's just a suspicion. It really is just a suspicion. I, I have a suspicion that the president's team is not being truthful with the president, that they're scared to be truthful with the president. And it makes me wonder, it, it, it has me concerned, are they telling the president what he wants to hear or are they telling the president what he needs to hear? Because I understand the hesitation. I, I understand the desire to tell the president what he, what you want him to hear. I, I, I genuinely get that uh, because he is a man who he likes to be told good news. He doesn't want to be told bad news. And if he's told bad news, he then gets mad. But at some point, you got to tell the president accurately what's going on on the ground. And even here in Georgia, I am noticing that the the campaign team for the president does not quite have it together. It, it doesn't seem that they're not going through the motions that one should go through to create a campaign that's going to win. Now, I, I don't don't hear don't mishear me saying he's going to lose in Georgia. He's not going to lose in Georgia. The president is not going to lose in Georgia. But they're not laying the groundwork to win in Michigan, and they're not laying the groundwork to win in, in um, Minnesota, and they're not laying the groundwork to win in Pennsylvania or or Wisconsin or even Arizona now. looks like it's going to the Democrats, and his campaign team are starting to wave flags saying, hey, we got to do something here, or the outside groups in those states. Somebody's got to do an intervention with the Trump campaign, and to do that, I think they're going to need to do an intervention with the president as well. Remember Kellyanne Conway back in 2016? She took the president's um, uh, phone away from him, told him he couldn't tweet. He needed to focus. He had metrics he needed to hit. If he hit the metrics, she gave him the phone back. Maybe they need to do something like that again um, because right now they're not really firing on all cylinders, and they need to be. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, if you want to be a part of the program. Now, there are other things we need to talk about. Uh, Twitter, you know, has started a, uh, well, Twitter. Twitter has decided to start putting notations at the bottom of the president's tweets on whether or not they are inaccurate uh, or not. And it is disturbing, to say the least, that they would do that. Uh, It is a problem, I think, that Twitter would decide they want to narrate the president's tweets, Uh, particularly now we know that the head of integrity for Twitter hates conservatives hates conservatives um it, it, it's it's crazy seriously um is some of the tweets let me read you some of the trees Yoel Roth Yoel Roth is the head of site integrity for Twitter here are some of his tweets uh I'm just saying we fly over those states that voted for a racist tangerine for a reason uh, regarding uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, that person in the pink cat is clearly a bigger threat to your brand of feminism uh, than actual than actual Nazis in the White House. 
Uh, today on Meet the Press, we're speaking with Joseph Goebbels uh, about the first hundred days. What I hear whenever Kellyanne Conway is on a news program. What is a personality bag of farts? <laughs> okay, that was funny. Well, what is a personality-free bag of farts like Mitch McConnell? How does a personality-free bag of farts like Mitch McConnell actually win elections? This is the the uh, team that is responsible for developing and enforcing Twitter's rules. And he clearly hates conservatives. He clearly hates Republicans. Um, that's this is this is one of the many problems. One of the many problems that we need to deal with as a country that the uh, that that the left in this country increasingly controls access to channels of communication online. Unfortunately, there have been attempts on the right to build out competitors, and many of the most or all of those have been uh, have been taken over by neo Nazis. And I, by the way, I'm not making that up. There, there are actually a, a number of uh, platforms that came out and they, on the right, to try to compete with Twitter and the like, and they were all overrun with neo-Nazis and white nationalists. No, I'm not giving, no, I'm not going to give you the names of those places. I don't want y'all to go seek them out and, and encounter the white supremacists, but they're there. Uh, so you're left with Twitter, you're left with Facebook, you're left with, with Google, you're left with YouTube. YouTube, by the way, and I want to get into this a little bit when we come back, is is uh, taken to deleting comments critical of the Chinese government and their uh, uh, communist propaganda masters. And I wish I was making that up. They're not. Now, what's actually happened probably is that uh, the Chinese communist propagandists are all in mass flagging the comments as spam. And so Google's algorithm is triggered. And the comments go away automatically because so many people do it. But there's a problem with that. Their Chinese are gaming the system. YouTube is not even allowed in mainland China. And the Chinese continue to game the system to censor comments that are critical of the Chinese internationally. You've got Twitter now doing what it does. Uh, the, the entire uh, establishment of Twitter is deeply hostile to the United States. Uh, and to conservatives, uh, Twitter is has decided it's it's too big for the United States. Uh, it doesn't. The, many of the the uh, elite at Twitter, the left at Twitter, they don't particularly care for conservatives. They definitely they're hostile to conservatives. They don't care for the United States. How can they like a country that elected Donald Trump and they want to control communications? You know, one of the few honest brokers out there, and, and there are still problems with it, it, but we should be able to distinguish between Facebook and the others. Facebook generally has been much more open to conservative concerns. Facebook, for example, has not deleted a lot of the content that YouTube and Twitter uh, so aggressively are willing to delete. Facebook has left stuff up, uh, conservative stuff, and said it, it, it's fair game. But Facebook now has decided to outsource its regulation of content to a an international tribunal of experts. So if you're an American and you've got a, a claim, a content claim, Facebook took something down and you want to appeal, you go to a panel of experts who may not even be American. One will be American, but maybe not all of them are. And so you may let someone from a country with more regressive free speech laws regulated American speech, which inevitably will lead to American speech 
being less free on Facebook. Now, Facebook's got concerns. They need to do this. And, and unfortunately, I think conservatives are helping the left make their case on this. And it's going to impact the presidential election in 2020. When we get back, I want to spend some time on uh, just how much the left is trying to bully Facebook to shape the election in 2020. Hello and welcome. The full number, if you want to be a part of the Eric Erickson Show, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This is a weird way to to report this. Uh, Pew Research just out with this. COVID-19 deaths have declined in Democratic congressional districts since mid-April, but remained relatively steady in districts controlled by Republicans. What, what What a weird... What, what a weird way to frame this. Uh, here, here's another way to frame this. Um, Republican districts have seen relatively few COVID-19 cases compared to Democrat districts. Yep. Um, or let's see. Here, here's another uh, way to frame it. Uh, rural areas in the United States have been less impacted uh, than uh, urban areas of the United States by the virus, because right? that would be true as well. Um, but yeah, overall, so Republican, um, let's see, average number of daily reported deaths in congressional districts represented by Republicans, 1.7. Uh, Democrats, 4.1. At its peak, there were two uh, new, newly reported deaths in congressional districts by Republicans uh, and 7.4 in Democratic areas. What a what a terrible way to frame this, to, to make the virus partisan uh, in that way, particularly when it distorts what's actually happening on the ground. The Republican districts have been less impacted. Uh, but, hey, let's, let's make it about uh, Democrats are doing better when actually the numbers suggest they're not. Uh, really is a pathetic way to handle it, but there you go. And and this they're 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 tweeting this out, and there's no Twitter notation under it. Twitter yesterday began to do something problematic, and and I need to set the framing for you so you understand it correctly. The president continues to advance the smear against Joe Scarborough. It was started in the the early 2000s by the left. It was picked up by Michael Moore, the Daily Coast, and and other left-wing groups uh, and disappeared. And now the president has picked it back up, suggesting Joe Scarborough married a woman who worked in his office uh, when he did not. And the president went on a tirade yesterday about it on Twitter. And the woman's husband, now she died in 2001, and and her widower husband released an open letter to Twitter calling on Twitter to take down the president's tweets that it was disgusting. Uh, He had moved on with his life. Her family had moved on with their lives. And now they're having to, to bring up all the hurt and pain of losing her again. And won't Twitter act? And and Twitter responded essentially saying no. They're not going to take down the president's tweets, but what they are going to do is they're going to start notating. They're going to fact check the president on Twitter. They're going to put little notations on Twitter saying this is true or this isn't true. Now, here we go. The problem with this is what what did I say killed? I I, I don't know. Um, The problem with this is that Twitter chose to fact-check the president, but is not fact-checking anyone else. 
you've got communist propaganda masters from China. In fact, I, I discovered that the Chinese information minister has blocked me on Twitter. I, that's, I wear that as a badge of honor. I, how many of you are blocked by the information minister of China? I am. The, 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 the commie blocked me. Uh, good riddance. But Twitter is not fact-checking the communist propaganda agents of China. Twitter is not uh, going back and adding fact checks to the World Health Organization's bad advice about uh, COVID-19. Re remember, it was the World Health Organization that uh, back several months ago was telling people don't actually don't wear masks. And now they want everyone to wear masks. Where is Twitter fact checking all of that? Where, where is Twitter saying uh, we, we need a revision of this? Where is Twitter fact checking uh, Europeans or any other country where where is twitter fact checking joe biden and the democrats they're not they're only fact checking the president and now it turns out that the head of site integrity the man who will oversee the fact checkers is a partisan progressive who drips with disdain for people who voted for donald trump and believes that the states that supported donald trump are racist he actually said that on twitter and yet twitter only wants to fact check the president. There's a clear double standard here. Twitter, this isn't going to be sustainable for Twitter, by the way. It's going to have to be all or nothing, or, or it's going to be a very clear double standard. This is a, a real, real problem for Twitter that they themselves got themselves into. And, and let's be real clear here. Twitter is a, a reliably progressive organization. Twitter routinely has double standards uh, for the left and the right. You know, I, I got uh, my account suspended for 12 hours by Twitter for a joke about Elizabeth Warren last year that she was going to introduce the the Wampum Act, uh, wrecking, American, uh, wrecking American markets uh, under progressivism or, or some sort. I forget what the acronym I, I can't. But anyway, Twitter turned off my account for 12 hours for making that joke, uh, the, the Wampum joke. That it was, it, it made claims about, this is, this is what Twitter claimed, that it made claims about her ethnic origins. I never said anything about her ethnic origins in the tweet, but Twitter turned it off. I had to delete the tweet if I wanted my Twitter account back. I kid you not. They wouldn't do that on the left. They wouldn't do that to people on the left. You've got uh, you've got people out there who routinely talk about wanting to kill the president on Twitter, and, and they're on the left, and Twitter lets it slide. And then you've got the situation with, with them letting the Chinese communist propaganda masters run all over Twitter. And Twitter doesn't do anything to them. They only want to do it to the president of the United States. And then there's YouTube. Where's the story on YouTube? Uh, from The Verge, uh, which itself, ironically, is, is a, a left of center site. YouTube is automatically deleting comments that contain certain Chinese language phrases related to criticism of the country's ruling Communist Party. The company confirmed to The Verge this was happening in error, and it's working to fix the issue. Oh, yes. It always happens in error when something like this comes up with national attention. And by the way, the only reason we know about this and the only reason Google is doing anything about it is because of outrage online. Several people put up com uh, comments critical of the Chinese communists and realized they were being uh, deleted. If the deletions are the result of a simple mistake, then it's one that's gone unnoticed for six months. 
The Verge found evidence that comments were being deleted as early as October 2019 when the issue was raised on YouTube's official help pages and multiple users confirmed they had experienced the same problem. Comments left under videos or in live streams that contain the words communist bandit or 50 cent party are automatically deleted in around 15 seconds, though their English language translations and uh, Romanized pinion equivalents are not. In other words, only if they are in Chinese are they deleted. The term communist bandit is an insult that dates back to China's nationalist government, while Wu Mao or 50 Cent Party is a derogatory slang term for internet users paid to direct online discussion away from criticism of the CCP. The name comes from claims that such commenters are paid 50 Chinese cents per post. These phrases seem to have been accidentally added to YouTube's comment filters, accidentally, which automatically removes spam and offensive text. The comments are removed too quickly for human moderation and are deleted even if the banned phrases are used positively. YouTube says it's been relying more on its automated filters in recent months due to changes to its workforce brought on by the pandemic. The accidental censorship, but wait a second, they just said this started happening in October of 2019, well before the pandemic. Hmm. The accidental censorship is even more puzzling considering that YouTube is currently blocked in China, given its parent company, Google, even less reason to censor comments critical of the CCP or apply moderation systems in accordance with Chinese censorship law. The automatic deletion of the phrases was highlighted on Tuesday by U.S. technologist and former Oculus founder Paul Merlucky on Twitter. But earlier reports of the issue date back to the middle of May when they were spotted by human rights activist Jennifer Zing. As mentioned above, though, The Verge also found complaints on YouTube's official help page dated to October 2019. Now, it's interesting that Google is saying it's relying on its algorithms because of the pandemic when it goes back to October of 2019, before the pandemic, before people were sheltering in place and couldn't get to the office. It probably is the algorithm. You know, the way these things typically work is that if 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 my entire radio listening audience right now were to go onto Twitter and mark something as spam all at the same time, Twitter would Twitter's computer systems or YouTube systems for that matter, if we did it at YouTube, would automatically label that comment as spam because so many people flooded the system to say it was spam at one time. The system believes the mass of people. So the Chinese communists have undoubtedly been gaming YouTube's system. The problem is that YouTube never bothered to respond, even though it's been documented back to October of last year, until there was national outrage about it in the United States. So let, let me just put this in perspective for you. You've got YouTube owned by Google that is allowing the communists of China to play with their systems in the United States to censor people critical of China. And you've got Twitter, which is allowing left-wing partisan hacks who believe that states that voted uh, for Trump are racist, you're, they're turning a blind eye to Chinese propaganda masters on Twitter while putting comments and fact checks on President Trump's tweets that they wouldn't put on anyone else's tweets. There's a real double center. Now, caveats, these are private companies. They can do what they want. You don't have to use them. There is a problem, though. If they're going to engage in a double standard and, and benefit 
uh, communist regimes where these sites can't even operate over the American system, well, then the American system does need to respond. Now, the way that these sites get away with things, and I'm a big advocate of the Communications Act, uh, and there's, I believe it's Section 230 of the Communications Act, essentially says that if these sites are uh, moderators, uh, or, or if these sites allow other people to publish, they're not liable for the content. So for example, if you go on Twitter or Facebook and you defame someone, you say something that is malicious and clearly not true about them, then as long as Google and Facebook are not uh, individually, uh, personally, humanly censoring comments or, or selecting the good and the bad, and computers are doing it instead, then they can't be responsible for the libel. In other words, if you've got a comment section, this applies to everyone. If you've got a comment section on your website and you leave it alone, you're not responsible for what someone says. And if you moderate the content and you're even handed about it, you're not responsible. And if someone calls you and says, hey, someone's slandering me in your comment section, would you delete it? You say, sure, you're not responsible and you're not going to be sued. Only the person who posted the comment can be sued. But if you actively engage in, in moderating your content section and someone calls you and says, hey, this person's defaming me, take it down and you refuse, then you become liable. Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, is more and more antagonistic towards the social media companies, and he wants to get rid of Section 230. He no longer wants it to apply to places like Google and Facebook and, and Twitter. And, and the result would be probably that many of these sites would go away. They, they would collapse uh, if they didn't have Section 230 protection because they would be liable for every negative comment put on their website. They literally could be sued if you put up – if you went on and put up something that was defamatory of someone else, uh, Facebook would be sued, not you. It would wreck these sites, and, and I'm not a big advocate of it, but increasingly, if Twitter and and YouTube and Google are willing to bow to the communist overlords of China uh, while treating the United States to a worse standard, then we're going to have to do something. And by the way, I, I do have to say, in disclosure, Google and Facebook have sponsored my conference in the past, and I, I'm willing to, to cast aspersions on both of them when I think they've done wrong. In fact, today, uh, there's also Facebook has set up the Supreme Court. It's a global panel of experts who are going to decide the free speech issues at, at Facebook. Facebook is moving in an opposite direction. Google and, and, and YouTube, YouTube and Twitter are hiring a bunch of left-wing hacks in San Francisco to decide what is and is not acceptable on their websites, or they're blocking stuff for China. Facebook doesn't even do business in China. Facebook wants nothing to do with China. Facebook doesn't want to work in China because it would have to give China access to its servers. And it said no. But Facebook is under fire from the left because Donald Trump got elected and, and the left can't blame Hillary Clinton, so they got to blame Russia and Facebook. So Facebook has decided it's going to allow its comment sections to be moderated by an international group of experts. The former Danish prime minister, uh, several Americans, and including one of the, the people who testified against the president in impeachment, and, and one of the president's former judicial picks, and, and several others are going to be on this panel of experts. The problem is that it's a three-person panel of experts that can be appealed up to this court, sort of Supreme Court where all the experts get together. And if you're an American, you're only guaranteed one American on the panel. 
So you may have a, a Russian and a Pakistani person, both of which are from both of whom are from countries that have worse free speech laws than the United States. So the only thing that's guaranteed to happen in Facebook system is that its speech is going to be more regressive than it is. If the United States is the gold standards for speech and you've got countries with less free speech recognition deciding what is and is not acceptable on Facebook, you're only going to make it worse. Now, again, Facebook private company can do what it wants. I understand why it's doing it. It wants to say, hey, not us. We're not making the call. It's this outside panel of experts. Go blame them. But it's not actually going to inoculate itself as as long as Republicans have an advantage on Facebook or it looks like they have an advantage on Facebook. Facebook's going to come under attack from the left. They want to break up Facebook because Donald Trump got elected. Maybe Facebook needs to go a different route. And maybe Twitter and, and Google, we need to recognize, really aren't our friends, at least with Facebook. Now, there's some some grievance porn on the right uh, where uh, people manufacture grievances and blame Facebook, and it's not really true. Facebook, and this isn't to say Facebook gets everything right. They don't. They've gotten a lot of things wrong. But I do think we need to distinguish between them, at least willing to listen to conservatives, and by the way, not take down a bunch of stuff that Google and Twitter rush to take down, like the Nancy Pelosi video, versus Twitter that clearly is now targeting the president of the United States in a way they're not targeting the communist Chinese. We should be horrified that an American company is willing to treat the communist Chinese better than they are Americans. Yes, you can call in. Uh, and if you text the word recipe to 33777, uh, if you did yesterday, you got the jerk chicken recipe. Today, it is my uh, rub recipe for meats. I, so can I just, as an aside, I, I realize there's more important stuff to talk about than this, but I'm, I'm, it's my show, doggone it. I, I get to talk about this stuff on occasion. Um, so when I first started smoking meats, I got a big green egg and, and started using it. And I, I discovered that there's a, there are a litany of rubs out there. You can go buy them. Like there, there's this brilliant, um, it is one of my favorite places to go. Uh, it is an Ace Hardware in Gray, Georgia. It's worth a trip if you're in Middle Georgia to Ace of Gray. It, it is it is unlike any Ace Hardware store you'll see. Now the Wesleyan Ace here in Macon is actually pretty fantastic, but this one in, in Gray it's it's just it's it's crazy. I mean, you got your your hunting stuff, your your boots, your clothes. You got your big green eggs. You got all your girls. It's just it's it's amazing. And there's an entire row after row of shelves of different rubs you can buy. And I've got some friends up in uh, the Canton area at uh, 441 Barbecue up there, which is great. If you're ever in the Canton area, go buy 441 Barbecue. They're fantastic. Uh, really good stuff. And and they've got some rubs that they commercially sell. Uh, Lane's Barbecue does and, and others. And they're all good. They're all good. And I just thought, man, if there are this many in, in, in this, I can make my own. And I, I started and I came up with a really good one. And I, I'll send out the recipe. Uh, at twelve fifteen today, but I, I got to tell you, over time I have increasingly decided to keep it simple, and, and I did this. Aaron Franklin from Franklin Barbecue has a uh, book out on barbecue, and he he said that you should keep it simple, and, and I kind of adopted his basic rub, which is turbinado sugar. That's sugar in the raw and kosher salt and pepper. And I I changed up the proportions from what he recommends to my taste. And I really like to keep it simple now. Uh, just just keep a, a very simple rub for me and eat poultry, poultry pork and beef. And, and for poultry, 
And for beef, I only I, I sprinkle it on lightly. And for uh, pork, I, I cake it on, get it really thick. And it's great. And it lets the meat and the smoke speak. Uh, I, I find more and more these days that there are a lot of people manufacturing rubs for meat uh, and they, they want the rub to shine through instead of the meat. It, well, if I'm going to buy if I'm going to buy a hundred dollar brisket, I want to taste the brisket. And if I'm going to bother to smoke it for 17 hours, I want the smoke in the brisket. And I think that the rub should be there to help bring, pull out the flavors of the meat and the smoke and not necessarily the flavors of the rub itself. And so that's my philosophy. So I send out my, I will send that recipe out. Uh, the, the basic one that I use regularly and, and the additions, uh, we'll send them out at 1215. You can text the word recipe to 33777. I even have a recipe for tomorrow and I don't even remember what it is. I'll have to figure that out, but I'll tell you. Now, when we come back, Kellyanne Conway is going to join me. The White House is taking some steps, particularly uh, if you are elderly, you've got diabetes, the cost of insulin is skyrocketing right now because of the COVID-19 situation. The White House is taking really aggressive steps to help senior citizens right now. They're trying to get the word out on what they're doing. She will be joining me at the top of the hour. We also need to talk about Kelly Leffler. She has been cleared by the feds of wrongdoing, and she wants everybody to know it. Uh, and and I, I'm happy to get the word out that uh, she has been cleared by the feds. They have abandoned the investigation to her, Jim Inhofe, and Dianne Feinstein. They didn't do anything wrong. Richard Burr is still in a world of hurt, mind you. Uh, we'll get into that and all the other news of the day and the virus spike in Georgia when we come back. Hello and welcome across the state of Georgia. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 87797-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The president of the United States is taking really good and decisive action uh, to help senior citizens right now. Uh, he's negotiated a deal uh, between insulin, insulin manufacturers and insurers that's going to help uh, Medicare recipients. Uh, be able to affordably uh, get their insulin should save the average uh, Medicare recipient about $450 a year. Really great uh, because the, the prices have been going up, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, joining me to talk about this and more is my friend Kellyanne Conway from the White House. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you, Eric? It's so nice to be I with you and your listeners. Thank you. Now, I, I just got to tell you out of the gate, you know, Georgia would make an excellent location for the convention if, <laughs> if Charlotte bails. <laughs> Georgia makes an excellent location for any number of activities and events. And I hear you loudly and clearly, as does the president. I think he's just uh, put the burden back on Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina to make good on the commitment, not just to the Republican National Committee for a convention, but to North Carolina contractors and businesses and individuals who have a contracted, uh, anticipated windfall of revenue, tens of millions of dollars at stake here. So, But we time is of the essence and we need some answers. And I notice lots of these governors say, we will follow the data. We're following the science until it's 86 and a beautiful beach day. And then their, their residents are all on top of each other at the beach or on the boardwalk and they just let it go. So hopefully uh, Roy Cooper won't stand in the way of North Carolina having this revenue, but there will be a convention. It could be in Charlotte. It could be somewhere else, including in your great state of Georgia. Excellent. Now, that's not why you're here. So the president he does want to help senior citizens with insulin. Uh, a pretty, pretty innovative uh, thing that he's done working with these insurance uh, companies and the manufacturer of insulin. If you could fill everybody in on that. Sure. So yesterday in the Rose Garden, the president was joined by the three major insulin manufacturers, Eric, along with the heads of the health care plans. So Cigna Express Scripts and 
uh, Humana, United Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and the rest, and then some of the patient advocates like American Diabetes Association and then also AMAC. And we announced a deal reached by President Trump and the administration and these outside providers to have insulin cost no more than $35 a month in a copay for seniors who are on Medicare Part D. Roughly one in three Medicare Part D recipients, enrollees, do have diabetes, and millions of them rely upon insulin, whether it's through the pump or the pen. And this president wants to reduce the price of drugs for everyone, prescription drugs for everyone, but we're beginning with Medicare Part D because we didn't need to wait for Congress to act on this. It's very shameful and sorrowful that Congress won't get back to work, won't work with us on reducing drug prices, but failing that, we needed to step into the breach and find a way to do this uh, through the private-public partnership of our White House, our Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and, of course, these outside providers. So the great news for seniors, Eric, is that because of this new initiative, no senior on Medicare Part D will pay more than $35 out of pocket. We found in our studies that the pressure price point for many seniors at which they stopped taking their insulin, stopped taking enough of their dose of insulin, they were hoarding it, and or didn't even bother to get the prescription filled anymore, was about $50. So $35 as a maximum, well below that. There are some plans that will be offering even more competitive prices to the Medicare Part D recipients. And if this model and this demonstration project goes well, our great hope and promise to the American people is that we can expand it outward to other insulin takers who aren't senior citizens and to other prescription drugs as well. Well, I, I was that was going to be my next question. It, it seems like this could very well be a model, particularly because Democrats. I, I, I was told the other day, I think Phil Kirpin uh, is the one who told me that Nancy Pelosi, in the negotiation of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, uh, scuttled all the administration's requirements on trying to keep prescription drugs uh, low because she wants the prices to go up for government control. And, and this seems like it would be a great way to get around her wanting to kind of wipe out that industry uh, by working with the manufacturers and the insurance companies directly. That's correct. I'm glad, Phil Kirpin, and you have raised that today, Eric, because it's so easy to see the shock, the conscience examples in, in Nancy Pelosi's so-called HEROES Act. I call it the Zeros Act. And uh, not because it won't cost you anything, but because it would. And they try to get Planned Parenthood funded through the PPP. They try to backdoor their you know socialist left-wing agenda through something called a stimulus for Americans. They mentioned China one time in the entire couple of thousand pages or so, or over a thousand pages of legislation. They hardly mention trade and manufacturing and jobs. In fact, they mention cannabis more than those terms. But you just raised another important point, a consequential one to your listeners, which is they also try to, they try to change your relationship with the federal government. They try to get more government control in there. And look, even give some credit to the Democratic primary and caucus voters of this last election cycle. They rejected all the candidates who were running, running very uh, vocally and visibly on Medicare for all, single payer, government run health care. You've got Joe Biden as a nominee now, uh, one of the authors of Obama Biden Care, which has really hurt many Americans uh, through explosive costs and through the big law that you can keep your plan, keep your doctor. But even his nomination shows how much Democratic voters were very reluctant to go full bore ahead on government-run health care. And so I think Pelosi also ran, runs into, she runs into a lot of problems in her own conference, but I also think freedom-loving and free-market-loving Americans who recognize that you don't want the government in so many aspects of your life. But Eric, you certainly don't want the government in the most intimate portfolio of your life, your health care.
<laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it always has struck me that the Democrats believe that you can't come between a, a woman and her doctor on an abortion, but you certainly can on every other health care issue in America. That's right. And speaking of abortions, can we just give a moment? Maybe you've already covered this, but if I can just have a moment um, to commend everybody. Certainly, I put it on my Twitter feed, but if you look at the videotapes that have now been released of the sworn testimony of Planned Parenthood executives and workers who admitted under oath that indeed they were selling baby body parts, mm-hmm. fetal tissue from aborted babies. Um, everybody, I don't care where you stand on the quote pro-life, pro-choice spectrum, everybody should be outraged. It should shock the conscience of America that you see the, the world's largest, excuse me, the nation's largest abortion provider makes the most of its money that way, also gets a half a million dollars a year, excuse me, half a billion dollars a year in taxpayer funding, over $500 million in taxpayer funding, and is the nation's largest abortion provider and is also very politically active. Paid tens of millions of dollars towards Hillary and the Democrats' campaign in 2016, will be active again this year. Is, is right out there as a big political player. They are admitting under oath what they would never admit elsewise, which is under penalty of perjury, they admitted that they, of course, are charging for the liver, the thymus, the kidney, the fetal oh. tissue. And if it made you squirm, everyone, good, because these are the facts and good for those who actually got those videotapes released. Uh, I'm sure that that we won't be able to see this on Twitter. Our social betters there, I'm sure, will we'll fact check that out of existence. Uh, which, you know, let me ask you this one last question. It, it turns out today, I, I th- you, you may have seen the uh, head of integrity for Twitter that's going to be in charge of putting these little blurbs under the president's tweets has, has said pretty disparaging things about the president, Mitch McConnell, you and, and anyone who voted for the president in general. And this is who Twitter is going to allow to supposedly fact check the president, but not the communist Chinese. Yes, I actually mentioned his name on uh, Fox News Channel this morning, Eric, for a very specific reason. I said, hey, you need to check out this guy. His name is Yoel Roth, Y-O-E-L-R-O-T-H. Make him famous today, everyone. His Twitter handle is at Yo Yoel. And you want to look because he is the head of integrity for Twitter. And he all but, well, all but called Trump voters, if this sounds familiar, deplorable and irredeemable, um, really castigating the those of us who would support the president and or his agenda. Um, and I think this is a big pro- this is obviously a big problem. So I'm sure somebody in San Francisco or Silicon Valley had to wake him up out of his slumber to say, hey, uh, people are talking about you, tweeting about you. He has less than 10,000 followers. Maybe he'll have more now. But this goes to the president's point. Eric, you know, social media has been a, a big equalizer for many conservative voices. At least you have the option of of play, of participating in what I call the democratization of information. We know that we're completely crowded out and clouded out of mainstream media. We know the polls are correct that about nine out of 10 mainstream media, minimum mainstream media individuals vote for the Democratic presidential candidate. That's been consistent for decades. They, they tend to be pro-abortion. They tend to be anti-gun. They tend to be anti, you know, they tend to be pro-tax and pro-spend. Okay, fine. We see them for who they are. But when it comes to crowding out conservative voices, we can't have social media do the same that mainstream media has done because for many people, it's their only outlet. This democratization of information that the president has created is significant, uh, whether it's your participation in social media or your ability to receive a presidential communication in real time, along with the billionaire CEO who has 20 people monitoring social media for him, along with the stay-at-home mom, along with the plumber on the job who's looking at his phone at that moment. Everybody gets a presidential communication at the same time and is able to participate. So you got to look up this guy as an example 
of, quote, head of integrity and now now using Washington Post and CNN and other anti-Trump outlets, proudly and loudly right. anti-Trump outlets, to fact check the president in real time. And look, we need to be concerned about mail balloting. The president said very clearly yesterday, if you need an absentee ballot, of course you'll get one. If you're infirm, if you're out of state, if you can't participate at the polls, of course you'll get that as you always have. But this is a different level. This is basically saying to Americans, sure, if you want to go to the beach and stand on top of each other on the boardwalk or in a park, that's fine. But gee, we don't trust you to be able to stand a few feet apart with a mask on to go and exercise your constitutional right and your franchise and participate in the in the in the election at the polls over five months from now, Eric. Mm-hmm. So right. there's, you know, I think there's trouble afoot when you see the head of integrity at Twitter, when you hear about mandatory mail-in ballots, when you watch Nancy Pelosi say that Congress can vote by proxy, even <laughs> right. though they should be here working like you and I are today. All of that is because they're, they, they, they can't get excited about their Democratic nominee. They think he'll lose, and they need to prop him up in many different ways. It's gone from locker up to prop him up, and, and they need to prop him up in many ways. And I, I think some of them are willing to, to do some underhanded things or to do things a little bit differently than we're used to using the pandemic as an excuse, not a reason. That's the truth. Listen, I've got to cut it short there, but thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. All the best. God bless. Absolutely. Take care. Kellyanne Conway joining me from the White House. Uh, Let's reset. When we come back, uh, we'll review uh, that conversation, but also get into the Kelly Leffler news as well, uh, cleared by the Justice Department in their investigation. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I will take your phone calls now. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, Kelly and Conway, uh, join me. Uh, you know, this is something just to review. Phil Kirpin was here last week talking about the AARP and Nancy Pelosi. They wanted to scrap a provision in the president's deal with Mexico and Canada. He got Mexico and Canada to agree to a provision that would limit Canada and Mexico's ability to uh, discount pharmaceuticals. So essentially they would wind up paying more because those countries cap pharmaceutical prices and we don't. And the reason we don't is because if every country on the planet capped pharmaceutical prices, innovation would go away and, and largely Americans subsidize costs everywhere else. And what the Trump administration wanted to do was to limit other countries subsidy as opposed to imposing a subsidy here so that uh, drug manufacturers would still have a good enough revenue stream to continue to innovate. Well, Nancy Pelosi scrapped that uh, deal. Mexico and Canada agreed to it, but Nancy Pelosi said she wouldn't even put it up for a vote in the House of Representatives if it remained, even though it would benefit Americans, because she wants price control caps in the United States, which would stifle innovation. She essentially wants a government takeover of the pharmaceutical industry, which would stifle innovation. Look at how we're relying on private sector companies to find a cure for COVID-19, to find a vaccine. And yet Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats want to stifle that innovation and competition. Well, what the president has done for insulin is he has, through Medicare Part D, without having to involve Congress, gone directly to the insulin manufacturers and um, and the insurance companies and gotten them to agree to keep the price down to $35 a month for insulin uh, at at a maximum. What they found is that senior citizens, when drugs get to about $50 a month, they stop or they curtail their uh, use of those drugs. 
So by reducing the cost to 35, they are incentivizing senior citizens continuing to take their insulin on a regular basis, uh, which will keep them healthier and actually drive down overall healthcare costs in the country by mitigating the need for seniors to go to the hospitals for treatment because they haven't been taking their insulin. So it's a win-win all around, and they were able to do this. And, and if this works as they hope it will work, then they will uh, move forward and do it with other drugs, which would be fantastic, uh, which is something that needs to happen. And it just, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I, I, I really, really think that this White House doesn't get the credit it deserves for some of the things it is doing in healthcare innovation without Congress being involved. And what it's doing is trying to find free market innovation for some of these concerns. And, of course, the media doesn't want to give them credit. The media can't give the president credit because the media has gone fully into the resistance. If there was good news that this president was doing something good, the media couldn't report it because people might decide, hey, he's not as bad as the media said. And this also plays into the problems with Twitter and social media when you are shaping uh, concerns out there and shaping uh, narratives in the press about the president and fact-checking. So, for example, Twitter decided to fact-check the president about mail-in ballots, saying essentially there is no evidence at all that mail-in ballots contribute to voter fraud. Now, what's so funny is that uh, about an hour after Twitter added this notation, the Justice Department filed indictments related to mail-in fraud. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, so the Justice Department decided to prosecute a bunch of people for trying to steal an election through uh, mail-in voting uh, within an hour or so after Twitter said that stuff doesn't happen. And, of course... Twitter didn't want to take it down. They they didn't want to um, they, they didn't want to upend things. Now, one of the other things, real quick, before I get out of here, one of the things I, I also want to bring up is the issue of the convention in Charlotte. Uh, from talking with Kelly and Conway, Georgia and Florida are in the mix as alternative locations. They've got to make the decision very quickly. Uh, the governor of North Carolina doesn't really want the Republicans to come to Charlotte anymore. Here's the president talking about it. Mr. President, how long will you give North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper to provide you with the information that you and the RNC are asking for before you decide to look elsewhere for a venue for the RNC convention in August? Well, as you know, we don't have much time because we have to know that if we're going to spend millions of dollars on an arena, we want to be in North Carolina. I love North Carolina. I won North Carolina. We just had a big two races that we won recently for Congress in North Carolina. Two very big races that the press didn't want to report on. If we would have lost them, it would have been the biggest story in political history. But we just won two races. It's a very important place to me. I love North Carolina. In fact, my son, Eric, and Laura named a baby Carolina and came from, I think, both. But she was born in North Carolina, as you know, Laura. So it's a very important place to me. Uh, but at the same time, and I think the people understand this, we have a governor that doesn't want to open up the state. And we have a date of August, in the end of August. And we have to know before we spend millions and millions of dollars on an arena to make it magnificent for the convention, 
And we have tremendous people. I mean, the economic development consequences are tremendous for the state. We have to know that when the people come down, they're going to have the doors open. Now, if the governor can't tell us very soon, unfortunately, we'll have no choice. This has nothing to do with us. This is between the governor and North Carolina and the people of North Carolina. But the people want it, and we'll have to see whether or not the governor — now, he's a Democrat, and a lot of the Democrats, for political reasons, don't want to open up their states. So we'll see if that works, but I don't think it will. Yeah, I don't think it will either. Here's a councilman from Charlotte, North Carolina, on bringing the convention. A portion of his latest tweet, he says they must be immediately given an answer by the governor as to whether or not the space will be allowed to be fully occupied. If not, we will be reluctantly forced to find another Republican National Convention site. So do you think that the governor can decide today or this week? No, not with any not with any accuracy that knowing what sort of crowd will be able to accommodate. Um, Mar-a-Lago might be willing to host a convention that has no safety precautions in place, but Charlotte, North Carolina is not. That doesn't mean that there can't be some sort of an in-person convention, but it would undoubtedly have to be scaled down and, and made at least partially uh, virtual or remote, in the same way that the Democrats have talked about they're going to have to do in Milwaukee. They want to disrupt the convention. Now, listen, there are health care concerns. Let's be honest here. There are real concerns about it, but if it's July and August, I mean, it, it, the, how often do you have these conventions and people leave with the flu in July and August? I mean, if this spreads the same way, what are the odds that people are going to be spreading COVID-19 around? Uh, the odds aren't actually that strong, frankly, uh, in July and August. So you do it uh, in the warm, humid weather. Come further south, like to Atlanta, and you're not particularly going to have those problems. Go to Florida if you want, but really Atlanta would be better than Florida if we're honest about it. <laughs> Who knows, though? We, we could do it in Florida. I just prefer Atlanta. It's closer, and it wouldn't be Charlotte. Kelly Leffler uh, has been given a green light by the Justice Department. She is not going to be investigated further. They've decided that she, Diane Feinstein, Jim Inhofe, uh, the senator from Oklahoma, uh, they have done nothing wrong when it came to the insider trading allegation. Now, I'm sure that's not going to stop her critics from attacking her for it. But it is fairly clear at this point that uh, Senator Leffler did not do anything wrong and was smeared by a lot of her opponents. You know, I, I, I got to say, I do feel kind of bad for Kelly Leffler. She she wanted this job. She got this job. And essentially, uh, people are trying to ruin her over the job. Um, it, it, the the Collins team, listen, I, I'm in no no bad words about Doug Collins here. In fact, uh, I won't let people, some Leffler supporters wanted to put something critical of Collins up at the resurgence and absolutely not. Uh, I'm not going to engage in a, in a attacks on Doug Collins. I, I do think though that his campaign, uh, she's given them ample opportunity to go after her. Uh, and I do wish that he hadn't done it because I think she is owed two years to define herself. I think the governor is owed the respect of the public to make this choice and have her prove him right or wrong over the next two years to fill out Isaacson's term. Uh, but that's not where we are right now. We got a primary and I, I'm not going to go after Doug Collins. I'll vote for Leffler, uh, but I would willingly cheer on Doug Collins. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm doing it out of respect for the governor. Uh, that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that the Leffler campaign uh, still seems to be uh, trying to to get off the runway without a full plane built. Um, it is it is 
a campaign that thinks it can use its war chest to overcome the odds and increasingly that war chest, the Collins campaign and the media have together successfully turned that war chest into a political liability for Leffler. It is noticeable to me when I drive around the state of Georgia that there are Leffler signs in medians and along rights of way and there are Collins signs in people's yards. Now I'm not someone who believes that the more yard signs you see, that the more uh, you're going to win. There, there is this psychological thing in campaigns where people want to win the sign war. Uh, you schedule, for example, one of the one of the things you do if you can pull it off is you deliver campaign signs to all of your supporters and you put a note on them. Say, don't put in your yard until this day. And you go out, you deliver to all of your friends and say, don't put them in your yard until this particular day. Uh, or do it at night. And so all your supporters go out that evening and they put up the signs in their yard. So when people go to work the next morning, suddenly they see your signs everywhere. That used to be a thing. And it's a psychological warfare in campaigns that, oh, look, all these people are putting their signs out. This candidate has no signs. And all of a sudden, whoa, where'd all these signs come from? This guy has way more support than I thought. The Leffler campaign's not actually doing that, though. And a few people actually organize in that way now. Uh, but it, I, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that the person who has the most yard signs out wins. In fact, there are campaigns who spend a lot of money on yard signs or billboards because they think the more they do, the more likely they are to win. And that's not true. What is true, however, is that when you see signs that are put in people's yards for one candidate and the other candidate signs aren't in people's yards but along right-of-ways, that suggests that the campaign with the signs in people's yards has an actual voter because there is a voter attached to a yard. There is not a voter attached to a right-of-way or a median. So when you see campaign signs all over the median and the rights of way, uh, there's no guarantee that that candidate actually has the votes to go with those signs. But when you see one sign in a yard, you know there's at least one, possibly two voters in that household who are going to vote for the person. And so Collins having signs in yards and Leffler having signs in right of ways is notable in that it suggests there is a greater grassroots support for Doug Collins than Kelly Leffler. And Leffler's going to need to work on that. She really is. I assume she'll be able to, um, but she's going to need to need to figure that out. I want to pivot to the cases in Georgia for COVID-19. They're on the rise. Let me give you uh, where we stand as a state right now with number of cases. Uh, there are 44,275 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Georgia based on tests. That is cumulative, not current. There are only a few thousand current uh, COVID-19 cases in the state of Georgia. Uh, 7,647 hospitalizations, cumulative again, 1,899 deaths. We'll get to about 2,000 deaths. The models turn out to have been right. And there is going to be an increase. Let me give you the, the, the numbers that we're starting to see on May 18th. I mentioned this yesterday, 972 cases. Uh, on May 16th, I'm sorry, May 17th, there were 335. I'm assuming that's a weekend. Uh, and the 16th uh, was 436. Now, let me double check. Yes, the 16th and the 17th, there's a, a big drop in those days because those are weekends, fewer people get tested. So essentially what you have is on the 14th, 787, the 15th, 866, and the 18th, 972, and then it starts dropping again. So there is an increase. 
Now, why the increase? There are a couple of things going on here you need to understand. The, the A lot of the media out there right now, is, uh, we have no idea why there is an increase. There are 18 states that are showing increases. Uh, all of those states have slowly reopened. And all of those states have explainable reasons for the increase. I, I want to focus on Georgia's. Part of it is, yes, reopening. But that's a really insignificant part of it. Here's what you need to understand about why Georgia's seen a spike. And by the way, uh, it, it does appear that this is a, a bump and then it goes back down. So why? Well, number one, increased testing. Uh, as Georgia has ramped up its testing, uh, it has not actually seen a big increase in the number of cases, which actually is counterintuitive. Um, a, a lot of states have seen the more you test, the more cases you find. In Georgia, the more you test, uh, what you're finding is the numbers hold steady. You, you're testing uh, 5,000 people a day, you get 700 cases. You're testing 10,000 a day, you're getting 700 cases. You're testing 15,000 a day, 700 cases. 20,000 a day, 700 cases. We're starting to see that go up a little bit. It, it's kind of a lagging indicator from testing, but it's still not significant, which is, which is uh, to Georgia's credit. So there'll be a little bump in the curb. But the other thing you need to understand about why cases are going up in Georgia is because of immigrant populations in the state. The Hispanic community in the state largely uh, consists of migrant workers. Many of those migrant workers, frankly, are not here legally. They are here to work and send money back to their home countries to take care of families that are there. Uh, they don't want to be American citizens. They just want to come here and work and they want to go home eventually. And there are a lot of people in the country who are opposed to illegal immigration, and they have taken the position that you've got to uh, deport all the illegal immigrants. And that's, that is a, a valid position. I mentioned that yesterday. That's your hill to die, hill to die on. God bless you. Uh, they've broken the law to get here. Send them home. That's fine with me. There's a problem, though. Because of that, many of these people stay in hiding even after they've gotten the virus. They won't go to the hospital and get checked. And they're spreading it in their communities. So you can say, you can say that illegal immigrants are spreading the virus and you would be true. You'd be telling the truth, but you would be missing one of the key aspects here. The reason the virus is spreading in these migrant worker communities is because we have a system right now that wants to so aggressively deport these people, they're afraid to go get help. And if they get help, they're afraid they'll be deported. And if they're deported with the virus, they're going to spread the virus not just within these deportation facilities, but to the American ICE workers, Immigration and Customs Enforcement workers, who are working in these facilities, much like prisoners in prison have been spreading the virus to prison guards who take it back out into their community. What you want as the solution right now is to tell these people, don't worry right now. Don't worry about it. We're not going to track you. We're not going to come find you. We just want to make sure that you are quarantining and that you have the medical help you need so that you're not spreading it to other people. At some point, you do have to recognize uh, your public health necessity of keeping these people from spreading the virus is far more important than rounding them up and deporting them. You can't really engage with a deportment issue without engaging with the spreading of the virus issue. You want the virus to stop spreading. Stop having these people worry that they're going to get deported by going to the hospital and getting help. Stop having these people worry that if they quarantine and people come help them, they're going to get found out and deported. You want them to be helped and you want them to quarantine. And so what you need to do is you need to go in these communities and speak in Spanish. Many of them don't speak English. And in Georgia, Brian Kemp has been doing that. He's uh, gotten John King, the insurance commissioner, who is Hispanic, 
who you wouldn't know that from his name, John King, but you hear him talk and, and you can hear a little bit of an accent. And he's great. And he speaks Spanish and he's engaged with the Hispanic community in Georgia. And he's been going out there with other Spanish leaders, Spanish preachers, knocking on the doors of, uh, of people in the Hispanic community saying, don't worry, you're not going to get deported. We just want to make sure you're healthy. We want to make sure you're not spreading the virus. We want to make sure you understand what the symptoms are, what the signs are, what you need to do if you get sick. And they are largely helping stop the spread of the virus in these communities. And it is these communities where the spike is going. And so we're seeing the spike in testing because these people are now more and more willing to come forward and get tested, knowing they're not going to get rounded up and deported. We just want to make sure they're not spreading the virus in the community. It is a no-brainer that this would be our public health position. It is a no-brainer that the state would want to do this. Now, unfortunately, the governor is going to get incoming fire from the uh, anti-immigration forces who think he needs to round these people up and deport them. Uh, there, there are all these vocal forces in Georgia who uh, they, they yell louder. They, they don't necessarily have cloud anymore, but they certainly have a, a microphone and they're not afraid to use it and even go after the governor who is sympathetic to their side if they don't get exactly their way. It is not smart public health policy right now to have these people scared to death they're going to get deported so that they don't go get medical help. You're going to spread the virus in the community. And so kudos to the governor and his team for getting into these areas like Gainesville and the poultry uh, producers or South Georgia as well and the chicken houses and the farms and the peach crops and letting them know don't worry about it. We want you to get well. We don't want you to spread the virus. That means we can't deport you because if you get the virus, we don't want it to spread in deportation facilities in Georgia. So here's what you need to do. And good for them for doing it. I mean, they, they really do need to be applauded for this. And the media, what we're going to get from the media, see, I told you so, there's going to be a spike. There's going to be a there's going to be a big increase in cases. See, I told you so. It's very interesting that over the last couple of weeks, the media has doubted the data in Georgia and said, well, this can't be real. We're not seeing what we expected. They must be hiding the data. And now suddenly data does show a little bit of a spike coming. And they're like, aha, look at the data. So wait, you mean they're not fudging the data now, but they were fudging the data when it didn't tell you what you wanted to see. And now you want your I told you so moment. So you're saying the data is right. And then the data goes back down. So are they fudging the data again? What, what's going on here? Or maybe it could be, maybe it could be that the state increased testing. They're finding it more in the wild. They know where it is. They know how to isolate it in those communities and they know how to take care of it so it doesn't keep spreading. That appears to be what's happening. It's, it's amazing how so many people want the government to keep you in your house and tell you what to do and how to live and when to go to the grocery store and, and what to do when you go to the grocery store. But when the government actually says, you know what? You can get out of your house, take precautions, but go live your life, get your business re reopened. These very same people are like, oh, the government's wrong. Why is the government only right when it tells you what you want to hear? I mean, your default, by the way, should always be the government is wrong. Uh, all, all, you should always default to the government is bad. And and, and I say that as a, as a conservative uh, who believes in rugged individualism, that, that there are uses of government, but we should never believe the government necessarily. We should never rely on the government to tell us how to live our lives. The government's job should be to help us uh, not have impediments so that we can live our lives and protect us from hostile powers and criminals so that we can live our lives without the government dictating to us. The left seems to want the government to dictate to us how to live our lives. And when the government says, hey, we're not going to do that, you go do it. Here are these parameters to be safe. Oh, my goodness. Why are they going to let us all die?
at some point, you've got to get off the social safety net and go live your life. Well, we went from uh, murder hornets to cannibal rats. Brace yourselves, folks. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has warned of unusual or aggressive behavior in American rats. As a consequence of more than two months of human lockdown for city-dwelling rodents who now find themselves unable to dine out on restaurant waste, street garbage, and other food sources. Last month, according to the National Health Body, dumpster-diving rats were absorbed, resorting to eating their young in the wake of urban shutdowns. Community-wide closures have led to a decrease in food available to rodents, especially in dense commercial areas, the CDC said. Some jurisdictions have reported an increase in rodent activity as rodents search for new sources of food. Environmental health and rodent control programs may see an increase in service requests related to rodents and reports of unusual or aggressive rodent behavior. Elevated levels of rat aggression have been observed in New York where there are increased reports of cannibalism and infanticide in New Orleans, where unusual rat behavior was caught on CCTV, closed circuit television. I turned the corner. There's about 30 rats at the corner feasting on something in the middle of the street. Bourbon Street uh, tour guide Charles Marsala told CBS News, complaints in Chicago have included reports of infestations in housing blocks as rodents seek sources of food. Some rodent experts predict increased urban rat aggression. Many of the rats in our cities depend on their nightly food, which is the restaurants and hotels and bars and donut shops and everything that we consume on the go. The overall rat-to-human ratio is notoriously hard to gauge. A 1949 study determined the ratio was 36 humans to one rat in New York. The estimate was increased to one to one in the 1950s and then dropped again to four humans to one rat. The CDC notes the rodent population upheavals are common during natural disasters. Preventative actions include sealing up access to homes and businesses, removing debris and heavy vegetation, keeping garbage in tightly covered bins, and removing pets and bird food, pet and bird food from their yards. There you have it. The rabid rats are going to come get us now. It, it, it is actually somewhat interesting to see the fallout from this. Like, for example, the it, it, all the reports in Venice because there was no activity in Venice, you could actually see uh, the water in the canals. You could see the fish in the canals. Typically, there are so many boats in Venice that the water is stirred up. And because the water is stirred up, you can't actually see to the bottom. And now uh, they're remembering, oh, yeah, you know, when the water is not stirred up, it's actually pretty clear. And you can see the fish. Or we're, we're seeing the um, the silliness of the environmentalist movement that – you know, we're, we're, we're actually helping the environment by staying locked down. Maybe we should stay locked down forever. It does kind of make you wonder whether or not these calls from the left to stay sheltered in place are about an agenda greater than stopping the spread of the virus. I, I really do think, you know, there was that story yesterday we talked about where the Democrats are fearful of an economic rebound, an economic rebound could help the president. And there's actually a lot of data out there suggesting hiring is picking back up, manufacturing is picking back up, uh, commercial sales are picking back up in the restaurant and hospitality industry. People are going back to work. Unemployment may be coming back down. Georgia, you know, is at a record high in unemployment right now. And it looks like uh, we may be headed in a good direction now. The, the national job loss claims are starting to slow. 
it looks like the country could slowly be coming back online. And it's going to be conservative states in the South that voted for the president that do it first. So naturally, you're going to get a a nasty media reaction as northern uh, progressives realize that, oh, my goodness, these southern conservatives, they're going to get ahead of us economically. How dare they? We must scare them and shame them. We'll get into the mask shaming when we come back, by the way. But then, of course, you've got the environmentalists who they're saying, hey, we need to do this, but we need to do this even more. This is saving the planet. Can we just do this more often? We need total communism and and the government pay everyone and no one ever go to work again. It is going to be interesting to see telecommuting. When you think about it, uh, you know, Twitter, for example, garbage company that it is, has decided that uh, people can indefinitely from here on out telecommute, uh, that, that if their office is not, if their presence in the office is not essential, they don't have to worry about it. And I think a lot of companies are probably going to do that. And that'll get people off the street. I, I got to tell you, having been now to Atlanta several times during this and seeing each time I go, the traffic is a little heavier. It really is the non-essential people who screw up all the traffic. I mean, all the essential people, people were going, I mean, people were able to do 100, what, 170 miles an hour on on Georgia 400 on a motorcycle a while back, 169, I think it was actually, was the speed of some guy on a motorcycle, outran the cops who were trying to chase him. God bless him. That guy's a hero. (laughs) But no, in all seriousness, I mean, people were able to go to and from work. And then when the non-essential people started getting back out, you had all sorts of wrecks. You had uh, car fires and, and tip-overs and 18-wheelers colliding with cars and people not paying attention. It's been crazy out there. It's like people forgot how to drive in the two months they've been home. I've been nearly hit most days. In fact, yesterday, had some guy texting and driving. I had to go three lanes over on the interstate to get around him because he was in the left lane. It was a 70-mile-an-hour zone. He was doing 65 texting next to an 18-wheeler that couldn't do more than 65, had everybody behind me blocked, so I had to go around them, had to go all the way over to the far right lane and go around them. And that guy could barely stay on the road. I'm like, where have you been for the last couple of months? You forgot how to drive. And the environmentalists want us to stay home. The progressives want to stay home. They, they, they want to help the environment, and they don't want to help the president. And if the economy starts growing, they are desperately scared that we could help the president. And so now we've got the, the we've got the murder hornet story, we got the killer rat story, we got all these stories. It sounds like the rats need us to go back to work. I I, I can't am- understand why they don't try to exterminate them, other than than the left wing activists. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it's time to get back to work. Now, when we come back. Can we talk about the Karen on Karen violence in Central Park? The the Amy Cooper story with the dog in Central Park and mass cancel culture. They're coming for Jimmy Fallon. They're coming for Allison Roman. It's a bunch of bored Karen social justice warriors out there trying to ruin people's lives because they're home and bored and can't leave the house. And so they're trying to make other people's lives miserable. It's a sad consequence of lockdown culture amplified by social media when we come back. Hello, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Yes, it is. I'm sure you're delighted. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Okay, okay. I I got to, I'm I'm looking through and realizing I forgot to do this. Have you all heard about the DA over in Columbus, Georgia? Uh, Not not the DA, he's the candidate. Hang on a second. I got to reroute audio because, all right. (laughs) Mark Jones 
is a district attorney candidate for the Chattahoochee Judicial Circuit. That's the Columbus-Muskogee area. Uh, he was arrested in 2015, charged with a DUI. He refused to take three sobriety tests. He eventually pleaded guilty to a DUI. He got a second DUI charge in November of 2019. That case is now pending, and an arrest has been issued again for a controversy over a campaign video. Let me play you the campaign video with the rapper Georgia Boy. Uh, yes, friends, this is an actual thing. Uh, where is it? Freedom and legalize weed. Yeah. Yeah. The people DA who we need. Why don't? Right now. Get out and vote. No captain. He on the ballot. He gonna be preaching and talking about it. He better ask. Who? Get out and vote. 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 Do it. Yeah. We can leave it there. It ends with drone footage of a car cutting donuts in the parking lot of the Columbus Civic Center with the DA candidate Mark Jones and the rapper uh, in the middle. Uh, the DA candidate is 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 too, wow, he, he's in a suit and my goodness. So, uh, well, the Columbus police got upset about it, as did the uh, Columbus City Council. They got upset about it. Uh, because uh, they didn't have permission to film the video there. And they were doing donuts in the parking lot, tearing up the parking lot. I mean, leaving black skid marks all over the parking lot. So Jones and the the two individuals, Christopher Mandel Blake and Eric D'Angelo Whittington, uh, are all being charged with uh, filming without a permit and damaging government property. Now, Black and, and Whittington have been booked into jail on Friday, uh, and there is a warrant out for the arrest of Mark Jones, the the lawyer running for DA. Uh, the Columbus mayor said uh, they destroyed government property and uh, nobody was notified that they wanted to film there. They didn't follow the proper procedure to do that. Uh, Mark Jones has gone on social media to accuse Julia Slater, the district attorney, who he's challenging of uh, trying to suppress the vote to stay in power and steal the election. Slater says she didn't even know the police and the mayor were going after this thing, and she's recused herself in her office. Uh, the girlfriend of one of the guys arrested said it was all Mark Jones's fault. Uh, the the Jones told the boyfriend he's going to be okay uh, when the boyfriend asked about uh, cutting donuts in the parking lot. Oh my goodness gracious! Oh. <laughs> and, and then the the the, the campaign ad uh, "Get Out of the Vote." His platform is the People's DA legalize weed. That that's his that is his uh, vote. Mark Jones to legalize weed in Muskogee County. Uh, and, and this guy, Jones, of course, has multiple DUI arrests in the past and got uh, one case pending, one he pled guilty, and now he's got this. Oh, the local races. 
I still don't understand why district attorneys are partisan races uh, in Georgia or sheriffs for that matter. But um, my my goodness, uh, my gracious, uh, this is this is just uh, Georgia politics, ain't it grand? Now we can move on to Amy Cooper. Having gotten out of, the, I, I had to share that. That was just bizarre. Um, but I, I got to get to Amy Cooper. Some of you have heard. Amy Cooper, uh, uh, have heard of Amy Cooper. Some of you have heard the phone call. Amy Cooper is a woman who was in Central Park the other day. There was a man, uh, Christopher Cooper. This gets confusing because uh, both of their last names are Cooper. He was an older black man who was in the park watching birds. Amy Cooper was a younger white woman who was walking her dog she was wearing a mask, but her dog was not on a leash, and she was in an area of the park where signs clearly say your dog must be on a leash. The man was watching birds, and the dog was chasing the birds, so the man asked Amy Cooper to please obey the law and, and put her dog on a leash. Cooper grabbed her dog by the collar and dragged the dog, didn't even put the leash on the dog, started dragging the dog over to start arguing with the man. The man had uh, dog treats in his pocket and offered to give the dog one to show that the dog would come to him and that this was dangerous for her and for her dog to let the dog do this. Uh, Cooper began berating the man for telling her to put her dog on a leash, that he couldn't tell her what to do. Uh, she then pulls down her mask and calls the police to tell them a black man is in the park threatening her and she needs help. Well, Mr. Cooper filmed the entire encounter. And Amy Cooper has now been fired from her job. Social justice warriors descended on her employer demanding she be fired and they promptly complied to keep the mob away from them. For his part, Christopher Cooper, the man who who filmed this whole thing, and let's be honest here, it's Karen on Karen violence. Uh, he wants her to keep her dog on a leash, demands that she comply with the law, and she's berating him. I, I mean, it's just, and, and this has now cost her, her her job, but he's come out and said, if you want someone to learn from this, you don't drive them from their job. And he, is, he has... Um, uh, criticized her employer for firing her, saying that, that that went too far. He wanted to raise awareness. Here's the thing, though. There are progressive activists who saw this video, and they were more upset with the way she treated her dog than what she actually did. What she did is as a white woman in Central Park, she called the police to say that a black man was threatening her, knowing that if she said a black man was threatening her, the police would respond. And that should bother everybody that she decided that she could pull a race card and get a police response. Because this comes on the uh, on the heels of the video out of Minnesota where the policeman has his, his uh, knee on the man's neck. The man clearly can't breathe. He's saying he can't breathe. He ultimately dies. The police have been fired. Uh, how many more videos like that do we need to see before we say there is a problem? How many more do we need to see? Before we say there's a problem, we we shouldn't need to see we and the thing here is that Amy Cooper is a progressive, 
And yes, the politics of this are relevant because New Yorkers and progressives like to have this view that they are open-minded and tolerant. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I routinely do believe that progressives tend to be some of the worst when it comes to racial politics. White liberals tend to be some of the worst. They're the ones who, for example, were defending Joe Biden for saying that uh, you, you can't be black and vote Donald Trump. Or if you're undecided, you, you can't authentically be black. And it was it was a lot of white progressives who, yep, got to vote, got to vote Democrat. It, 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 there's this tone deafness from white progressives that doesn't exist anywhere else. They're, they're so into wokeness. And, and, and let's be honest, somebody pointed this out yesterday. Social justice warriors are essentially online Karens, and they're all on the left. They demand that we all comply with, with what they want. They bully and harass you and shame you. This, this outrage mob, though, coming for this. What lesson is going to be learned here? other than that the mob comes for people. The mob came for this woman's job. She apologized. And it, who are you to say her apology was insincere? I did see this from some people who said, well, she didn't apologize the way she should have apologized. It wasn't sincere. You, you know, Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, he didn't say forgive them, but only if they apologize in the way that I think they should apologize. No, but just forgive them. No apology required. Just forgive them. It's kind of a, if we're supposed to be more like Jesus, just just she apologized, move on with your life, but they couldn't do it. They had to destroy her. The mob came for her like Jimmy Fallon. So you've got the governor of um, the, the governor of Virginia either appeared in blackface or a KKK outfit. And the social justice warriors gave him a pass because he's a Democrat. They, they tried to oust him for a week and then uh, let's move on to, to some Republican somewhere. Well, now they've come for Jimmy Fallon, who 20 years ago appeared in blackface. And they're out to get him now. He's had to come out and apologize for doing that 20 years ago. You know, this is the thing about the Internet and, and the social justice mob that it doesn't it, it, essentially what they do is they never give you leave to improve now, what do I mean by that? It, it is, I, I don't think anyone can dispute that Jimmy Fallon of today would not be in blackface, as opposed to Jimmy Fallon of 20 years ago. But the left now wants to define him by what they determined was his bad act 20 years ago. That, by the way, was on television. It was on TV. Everybody saw it. And they're only now just resurrecting it because they don't like Fallon because he hasn't been hard enough on Donald Trump. That, that's why, by the way. That's the, the undercurrent here is because he hasn't been nasty enough. He hadn't been like Kimmel and, and Colbert to the president, and they're out to get him because he hasn't been partisan progressive enough. You're defined by your last bad act, and you're never given license to improve unless you improve exactly as they want. So, for example... Years ago, I said something I shouldn't have said on social media. I even wrote a book about it. And it was a decade ago, and it still gets thrown out that you're the guy who said this. No one should listen to you. A decade ago, and I apologize, but it doesn't matter to them. Now, here's the thing. If I were to come out tomorrow and decide that I was totally down with wokeness and that I was wrong and I'm so sorry 
And yes, I, I must declare myself progressive. I need to vote for Joe Biden, but he's not really far enough. I really do, do hope he picks a progressive like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as his running mate. Uh, and I'm totally down with the LGBTQIAATP whatever uh, agenda. And um, we we've got a we. I need to go strangle my kids because they're they're carbon emitters and uh, this they're bad for the environment. And I'm so sorry that I dared to reproduce and I'm killing the planet. And please get me a Tesla tomorrow. And on and on. And, and completely conform to the, the the far left's agenda, only then would I be welcomed in polite society. Only then would the gang and media matters give me a pass because I, I would be totally progressive. But unless I conform exactly as they want me to conform through their shaming, no pass for you, no grace for you. You can come out, you can apologize, you can say, I should have said that 20 years ago, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. Again, I'm sorry. And still, there's no grace for you because you haven't conformed to what they want you to do. It's not just that they want you to apologize. It's that they want you to be just like them. They want you to conform to their ideas, and, and they, they want you to cave to them. And that's what all the social justice warrior stuff is about. And so now it's somewhat ironic that they've come after this Amy Cooper woman who is one of them. She is a progressive. She doesn't like Donald Trump. But she dared to expose on camera what a lot of these white progressive New Yorkers and others are like. She, she dared to expose the, 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 the racial antagonism and the cards they're willing to play even as they demand uh, social justice and racial consciousness in, in the United States. She dared to expose their hypocrisy on camera, so she must be destroyed. An apology can't be good enough for her either. Because she already agrees with them, but she dared to show the ugly side of what progressives can be like. And so she must be destroyed. No lessons are to be learned. Uh, this isn't actually about becoming a better person. It's never about uh, forgiveness. It's never about apologies. It's never about moving on. It's never about growing up. It's never about understanding. It's never about repentance. It's about destruction of people. If they refuse to conform or if they expose their own side's hypocrisy, they got to be ruined. Remember, there's no grace in secularism. Grace is a uniquely Christian phenomenon. There's no grace in secularism. There may be mercy. You might be spared from that thing you deserve, but you will never be given the grace of that thing you don't deserve. And typically all there is is judgment. And you know that the craziest thing about secularism as a religion, and it is a religion, it's got its own rites, its rituals, it's got its creeds, it's got its dogma, it's got it. I mean, it, it, it's got everything. It's got its sacraments. The thing about the secular religion you have to remember, though, is that when you repent and become a progressive, you're still damned as long as there are people who aren't progressives around. That's why secularism is so angry. That's why environmentalists are so angry because the environmentalists, they may be doing all the stuff they need to do to save themselves and the planet, but as long as you carbon emitters are out there, they're still toast ultimately. So you've got to be silent, censored, or otherwise made to, well, be re-educated or worse. Man, have y'all heard about this uh, exchange on CNBC this morning? Um between uh what's his name uh joe kernan and andrew sorkin oh so andrew sorkin is uh he's a editor at, at squawk box um he's co-anchor uh he is with uh joe kernan and man uh you gotta you gotta hear this exchange between the two of them from earlier to, to, to <sighs> act the way you are i'm sorry okay. you yelled I'm at the poor guy about the guy, guy yesterday with masks is like why are you yelling at I'm me i'm not now? joe 
You just yelled again. I don't I'm know. Not. I'm just trying to. Go ahead. I'm just. I'm sorry. No, you're not. No, you're not, Joe. I'm sorry. Okay. Go um, ahead with the news. You you panicked about the market. Panicked about COVID. Panicked about the ventilators. Panicked about the PPE. Panicked about ever going out again. Panicked and that you we'd ever Joseph, get back to normal. Joseph, you didn't panic what about anything. That? What good is it? Why Joseph, not? Why not help people, people die. keep their head? I, I understand that. A hundred thousand people died, Joe, and all you did was try to help your friend, the president. That's what you did. Every single morning on this show. Every single morning it, it on this had, show, it, it had you abused and abused your position, that's Joe. That's totally unfair. You abused and, and abused I'm your position. I'm trying to help investors keep their cool, keep their heads, and as it turned out, that's what, you know what they should have done. That's what they should have done. They should have the kept their heads. If they had listened to you, Andrew, we're supposed to be at about 8,000. I wasn't arguing to go sell your stocks, Joseph. I was arguing about people's lives. We understand. People's uh, Andrew, lives. Andrew, That's it's a the global argument. pandemic. Do the news. I'm begging you to do the news, it's Joseph. It's a global pandemic. I'm begging you. Andy, Please. It's a global pandemic, Andy, where per capita deaths, we're down near the low end of per capita deaths. We're nowhere near per 100,000. Most places are at 60 deaths per 100,000. We're at 29. So it's, un it's terrible that we've lost 100,000 lives. It's terrible. But it was never going to be that, that we weren't going to come back and that we weren't going to return to normal. And, you know, siding with Ackman and, and everything else, that, you know, giving credence to all that panic didn't help any investors at all. And, yeah, the, <laughs> awkward exchange for folks at CNBC this morning. You know, so my buddy Steve Krakauer, uh, points this out that this is a microcosm of the of the left right debate right now, um, you, you, and this is what I see with the media when, when they want to blame the president for the president's initial responses. The president was clearly trying to keep people from panicking, and the people who hate the president, and the media, look at this. Why 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 didn't you let us panic? Why didn't you panic? Why, why, we should have panicked, Mr. President, and he didn't want people to panic. And it turns out, you know, by and large, the media actually is doing a good, the media, the, the, the president is doing a good job. The, the country is doing a good job. Uh, Joe Kernan actually is right. Uh, per capita, yes, 100,000 deaths is, is terrible. But it's way better per capita than most other countries. It actually is. We happen to have way more people than these European countries. And the, the the left in the country doesn't want to acknowledge that because they would have to acknowledge that it didn't turn out as bad. Uh, you know, a, a, as I've said repeatedly on this program, a, every epidemiologist I've talked to has said the goal of the models is to tell you the worst case scenario so that you beat it. And we beat the models to some degree, to some degree. The models did predict 100, 200,000 deaths. We, we, we're, we've hit the nail on the head with the, the middle range of the models when it comes to deaths. But, you know, the models keep shifting and the models keep doing a way better, a way better job of showing, like, for example, in Georgia, not nearly as bad as once claimed. And we should be applauding that. And the idea that that trying to keep people from panic was somehow bad I think that's just wrong. You know, there are two sides to this coin. We, we can't destroy our economy, but we need to save lives. And can we find the balance without accusing each other of wanting people to die or being in it for the money? I, I We should be able to, I would think. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know.
Now, keep in mind at twelve fifteen, uh, my my. If you're into smoking meats at all or barbecue, the the rub recipe goes out at twelve fifteen. I can't remember what recipe I put in for tomorrow, but there's one for tomorrow as well that you'll like. Okay, uh, I, I gotta I gotta play this for you because it's perfect. Um, so Cal Perry was an Al Jazeera reporter. He's now over at MSNBC, and he went up to Miss Michigan for MSNBC to shame the people who are outside not wearing masks. This has become a new thing, and I I don't get either side. Why are the masks political? I don't understand it. Um, Wear a mask when you're out in a crowd. It's common sense right now. It's not political. I don't know that the government needs to force you to, but but the idea that I'm going to defy the government um, and I'm not going to wear a mask when I go outside. It, it, it's kind of, there's, there's a level of selfishness. You do have responsibilities along with your rights. And if the government thinks that we're in a mask right now, and I realize that at first the CDC and the world health organization said, no, you don't need to, except we're seeing in South Korea, we're seeing it in, uh, in Slovenia, we're seeing it in Taiwan that, uh, wearing masks in public has helped the virus go away quicker. Wouldn't we want, shouldn't we want to do everything we can to help the virus go away quicker? We're seeing, uh, forget what the world health organization says. We're seeing it in these countries that it works. And yet some people are like, it's just virtue signaling. If you wear a mask in public, no, no, it's not virtue signaling. It's, it's virtue signaling to say, you can't make me wear a mask. But then it doesn't help that the media wants to shame people for not wearing masks. And the tables got turned on Cal Perry and MSNBC yesterday in Wisconsin. Listen to this. So are the people there just not worried about it, Cal? Are they not worried about their own personal safety? I haven't met anybody who is. I met some folks actually from Lake Geneva who lived in the area. They were staying a few miles outside of town where I were. And they said they're worried about it. They're worried about that second spike. They're worried about folks coming in from Chicago. But they'll quickly add at the same time, this is a place that relies on that business. I think people here want a little bit more funding when it comes to these programs so that they could stay closed. But again, I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's, uh, there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. Katie. Striking images. Cal Perry. Cal, thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, yes. So the cameraman and most of the crew, not all of the crew, but most of the crew were not wearing masks. Cal Perry was, uh, the. there were, I saw two people in the frame walking past him who had masks on. Everybody else was out and about with no masks. And Cal Perry, the reporter, wearing, wearing his fancy mask. And it took a passerby to point out that none of the people, with one exception, uh, none of the people with the reporter were wearing masks either. And yet they want to shame the people who don't want to wear the mask. That they, they, they want to shame the people who who aren't willing to go along with what they say. Now, listen, I, I am totally in the camp of you should wear a mask in public. I, I, I have and I have not. In fact, the other day I intended to, but mine was in the washing machine and I forgot it. So I didn't have a mask on. Uh, but just yesterday I had to take my daughter downtown to drop off uh, a piece of artwork at a place. And we, we wore masks going in. I wore a mask to Publix yesterday when it was crowded. I didn't wear a mask to Publix when uh, the parking lot was empty. I didn't wear a mask in, in going through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, but I wore one going into a restaurant the other day to pick up food. I mean, use common sense, but I, I don't understand why it's politicized right now. I, I, I don't understand the politicization of it. I, I really don't. It just seems uh, people have too much time on their hands. Now, 
let me move back to some of the Georgia stuff here specifically because a hurricane season is upon us. You know, there's a tropical storm sailing into South Carolina today. Uh, hurricane, is it Bertha? Uh, tropical storm Bertha? And there are a number of reports out. For those of you who live on the coast and in South Georgia listening to me right now, there are a number of reports out today that uh, given the so limited supplies out there right now, that you best go on and stock up on your hurricane supplies now. If you need a generator, get it now. If you need plywood and nails and hammers, get them now. That they there will be no guarantee that you will be able to get those things uh, later in the season, as Georgia is more likely to encounter stronger storms. In fact, uh, the fact that we it is it's May twenty seventh, and we've already got a tropical storm sailing into South Carolina, give you a sense of what we may see. Now, of course, uh, j- just to be clear, there is no guarantee we're going to see a bunch of them, but the odds are we are. And so we probably need to go on and prepare. Uh, I, I should, you know, considering I do the show so often from my home studio, I should probably have a generator for my house that I don't. I've got a battery backup, um, but I probably need to get a generator or something for my house at some point. It may, maybe just for this room. I, I don't know. I need to talk to an electrician, I guess. I need to make something like that happen, I suppose. Um, it, it, but nonetheless, go on and prepare uh, and, and take steps to plan. The other thing you need to be mindful of, here, here we go. The, this story always infuriates me. I saved it for the end so I can, I can leave the show angry. Two of Georgia's most prominent business groups united Wednesday to press state lawmakers to adopt a hate crimes law when the legislative session resumes next month. The heads of the Metro Atlanta Chamber and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce issued a rare joint statement calling for the swift passage of hate crimes legislation that aligns our state's law with our values when legislators return after a months-long pandemic delay. The passage of a hate crimes legislation in 2019 by a bipartisan group of Georgia House representatives was an important step forward for our state, said the statement by Hala Modelmug of the Metro Atlanta Chamber and Chris Clark of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. Okay, let, let me read you the phrasing here. Swift passage of hate crimes legislation that aligns our state's law with our values. Is religious persecution by the state a value of our state? Is religious persecution by the state of value? Because the Metro Chamber and the Georgia Chamber have long opposed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Georgia. Georgia is one of only a handful of states that doesn't have a state-level RIFRA. Even California has a variation of RIFRA. And yet Georgia doesn't, and it's been the chamber that's been the chief obstacle to RIFRA in the state of Georgia. If you're going to tell us that a hate crimes law aligns our state's laws with our values? Uh, Does RIFRA not? Does religious freedom not align with our values? Because you people have been the ones opposing it. I mean, the chamber has helped repeatedly kill the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. If you're going to pass hate crimes legislation, at least put RIFRA in it and make the chamber choose. Show show us what our values are. Do you want to protect people of faith? Now, I'm philosophically opposed to hate crimes legislation, just so you understand. Uh, I I think hate crimes legislation is a thought crime. You know, murder law, uh, murder, hang on a second. Let's do this in real time. Uh, Georgia code on murder. Here we go. 
uh, murder. 16-5-1. A person commits the offense of murder when he unlawfully and with malice aforethought, either express or implied, causes the death of another human. Express malice is the deliberate intention unlawfully to take the life of another being, which is manifested by external circumstances capable of proof. Malice shall be implied where no considerable provocation appears and where all the circumstances of the killing show an abundant and malignant heart. So if you're charged with murder in the state of Georgia, you're already charged with having a malignant heart. You're already charged with a hate crime. Malice, murder, involves malice. It involves hate. So why do we need hate crimes legislation? Because, oh, you, you didn't actually kill the person, but you hated them. So we're going to send you to jail for hating that person. You said something derogatory and you said it from hate, but we can't send you to jail for your speech. So we need a hate crime to charge you with. We should not criminalize thoughts. See, this is where, where I get back to secularism is a religion in and of itself. You see, in, in, in every faith, there are sins. In every faith, you run afoul of, of, of a natural law. In Christianity, the, one, the, the faith I am most familiar with because I am one, to hate is a sin. And you must repent of your sin of hating. You're supposed to love your neighbor, not hate your neighbor. You 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 can't commit murder. You can't commit things from hate. You, you shouldn't covet. Uh, you shouldn't steal people's property. You shouldn't lie about other people. It all comes from hate or pride. A lot of it hate. And it's a sin. Well, secularism is a religion as well. And hate is a sin in secularism. And because there is no eternal immortal God, there's only the mob, you must find a way to hold someone accountable before the mob for their sin of hate. And that involves prosecution in a court of law. So we will stand in day of judgment for your hate before God in Christianity. You will stand before uh, the the God of, of Islam and be judged through eternity, through incarnation, whether you evolve or devolve, you, you will deal with it in, in Hinduism and Buddhism and the like. But in secularism, which believes in no eternity, you've got to create heaven on earth. And to create a heaven on earth, you've got to have your day of judgment in a court. And your thoughts, just like in every other religion, your thoughts can be sinful and you must be punished for your thoughts. It is a religion. Hate crimes are part of a religious code, part of a moral code. And what's so crazy is that you can't get laws in Georgia, the Chamber of Commerce and Republicans, the Speaker of the House in Georgia, David Ralston, have repeatedly killed protection for religious people in Georgia with relation to the government. They've mischaracterized it constantly saying, oh, it would allow a, it would allow a, a, a Christian baker to discriminate against a, a gay person. No, actually, RIFRA, RIFRA doesn't do that. All RIFRA says is that uh, the state cannot legislate something against people of faith that uh, conflicts with their faith unless there's no other way to do it. There's got to be a high standard for curtailing people's faith practices. 
between the state and the individual, not between individuals and individuals, but between the state and the individual. And the Chamber of Commerce doesn't want that. David Ralston doesn't want that. Majority of Republicans in the state don't want that. So they want to criminalize your thoughts with hate crimes legislation, but they won't protect religious people from the heavy hand of government. Even the federal government, even Bill Clinton was willing to, and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, they were all willing to support RIFRA. They were all willing back in the day to support the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Even California passed a version of RIFRA. Over 30 states have passed versions of RIFRA. But it is the business interests in the state of Georgia that say it has no place in this state. The very same business interests who now say we need to align our laws with our values in the state and pass hate crimes legislation. Uh, apparently, religious liberty is not a value in the state when it comes to the money grubbers at the Chamber of Commerce who want to help Hollywood uh, secure a foothold in the state and have Georgia values be Hollywood values. And they've got a Speaker of the House who's willing to help them. Y'all need to prepare your members of the state legislature for this. Y'all need to make sure that your member of the state legislature understands uh, that a hate crime is a thought crime and the state has no business doing thought crimes. Now, they can say, well, we're one of only a handful of states that don't have it. Well, we're only we're one of only a handful of states that don't have Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You give me RIFRA, I'll, I'll, I'll give you hate crimes legislation. But you don't want to do that. You, you don't want to make that deal. You don't want to protect religious people. That's what this is about. This, this exposes the hypocrisy of the Chamber of Commerce. That they, they don't want Hollywood mad at us. They want hate crimes because Hollywood likes to criminalize thoughts. Hollywood likes to punish people for thoughts that Hollywood doesn't like. We've already got it built into, into murder. Well, why, why do we need hate crimes legislation when it's already part of murder? Malice is part of murder. Why do you need to, to extra put? Oh, well, we, we're going to give you the death penalty for murder, and then we're going to restart your heart and kill you again for the hate crime. That's it. That's the ticket. That's essentially what they want. We're going to give you extra punishment because you hated when you, well, of course, you wouldn't have committed the crime if you didn't hate the person. It's it's politically correct nonsense. It is a secular religion uh, trying to write their theological code into the state code. And a secular religion is hostile to competing religions, so you can't get a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But by God, the Chamber of Commerce and David Ralston want you to have this. You need to stand up and have your voice heard. If they're going to give you hate crimes, at least give you RIFRA. But if they're not going to give you RIFRA, they shouldn't give you hate crimes. In fact, they shouldn't give you hate crimes at all. There's no reason for hate crimes legislation in the state of Georgia. There's no reason for hate crimes legislation anywhere. Punish them within the existing law for the actual crime they committed, not the thought behind the crime. That thought should be baked into the crime itself. That they haven't done that is their failure, not your failure. That you don't need more thought crimes on the books. This afternoon at 4 o'clock, SpaceX and NASA intend to launch two American astronauts via a uh, private rocket, not a publicly built rocket, but a, well, I guess it, it built with public money, but by a private corporation, not the government building it, uh, launched them into space. Uh, a lot of uh, news outlets are going to carry this live. It's kind of a big deal. We have been hitchhikers into space for the last decade or so. It's, it's kind of a, a, a an appalling situation. Now, I understand we, we've had priorities around the world with war and, and other things. Uh, 
but it really is something that other countries have been building uh, missions into space. And we kind of, we landed a man on the moon 60 years ago and then, or 50 years ago, and then walked away. And I understand the concerns about budget and things like that, but I've also always bought into the argument, I really have, uh, that our advance into space has given us incredible advancements over time. Um, nylon and astro, uh, astroturf and, um, oh, whatchamadiggy, um, all sorts of, now I can't even think of it, Velcro, Velcro. Um, all sorts of, of things, innovations have come about because of our commitment to going into space. And I think the private sector in the United States has largely benefited from these things over time. And we kind of, we abandoned it all. We never really proceeded with the space shuttle. We never really, uh, yeah, microwaves and Teflon too. Thank you, Brent, uh, listening. Uh, and we, we've kind of, we abandoned those things. We abandoned that research. We abandoned that progress to other countries now. Uh, we had a scientific lead in this country uh, and an expertise when it came to rocketry. And we we let it go. And it's great now to see public-private partnerships step forward. Uh, listen, Elon Musk, I think, is a nut. Um, I, I I don't want a Tesla. I, I want a Tesla and I don't want a Tesla. I'm not sure that con- company is going to be around in five years. And the reason is because I don't think Musk is a very stable person. I, I, I think he's overrated as a as a thought leader. Uh, and a lot of what he says, I, I suspect there's some, some drugs or something talking. And he's going to get himself in trouble at some point with his tweets. Uh, but SpaceX, though he is the figurehead and the funder, has largely been put in very capable hands uh, that are trusted by NASA. Uh, Elon Musk is not really in charge of day-to-day operations, despite his bluster. They've got competent hands, and they've been able to build this rocket. And Godspeed to them today. I'm going to be watching. I I suspect I'm going to be preempted on my evening show as this thing's going to happen at 4 o'clock this afternoon, which is a great, great thing. It it is great progress in the United States that we're sending men back to space from the United States instead of having to hitchhike on someone else's rocket abroad, the Chinese or the Russians. If nothing else, maybe this will inspire us to begin a wholesale revision of our space policy to incentivize even more private space launches with even more companies. You know, uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit failed yesterday. They're trying to launch uh, small rockets from under the wings of 747s, and they've got the procedure in place, but the rocket failed yesterday. They want to do small satellites. Uh, and, and they want to do also send people into space. You've got uh, Virgin Galactic. They want to uh, allow tourism in outer space. These things sound silly, I realize, but the technology advances that we're making along the way for rockets and, and the aerospace industry, I think overall will help the United States. And we should be encouraging this stuff. It's just sad to see the collapse of the American space industry. It's sad to see us walking away from a project uh, where the American flag is on the moon and we're not there. I would love in my lifetime to witness a moon landing. The, the, the last landing on the moon happened before I was born. And I would love to see another moon landing. Yeah, there's still so many people out there who it was so long ago, they don't think it really happened. They think it was on a Hollywood stage. I would love to be able for us as a country to witness this again. Uh, maybe we'll get there. I don't know. Costs a lot of money to do, but it would be awesome if we could do it because I think the side benefits long term would be fantastic for this country and the morale of this country and get us back to looking upwards.